Welcome to Episode 6 of Mojo for the Modern Man. This is your host, Ken Mossman. And today is the first of two conversations that I will be having with Rick Bronick. And uh, a true extraordinary conversation that we split in half, by the way. And uh, Rick is an author, he's a speaker, a coach, a webinar creator, uh, as well as a skilled facilitator. He's been a leader of men's training with the Mankind Project since 1990, and he's facilitated men's workshops on five continents, 11 countries for thousands of men. And that gives him a kind of a unique window into both the state of modern manhood and masculinity, as well as the needs of modern men. Rick is also an Amazon bestseller, uh, and his books include The Seven Generation Story, An Incentive to Heal Yourself, Your Family, and the Planet, A Passionate Life, Seven Steps for Reclaiming Your Passion, Purpose, and Joy. Rick is anthologized in uh, One Habit, 100 Habits from the Happiest Achievers on the Planet, and all three books uh, are available on Amazon as Kindle books and, of course, as audio books. And he will be releasing a fourth book uh, later in 2020 with a co-author by the name of Leonard Simzek, Power Tools for Men, Building a Meaningful Life of Purpose. And uh, in this first part of the conversation between uh, Rick and myself, uh, we'll dig into a little bit of Rick's history, of course, some of the lessons that he'd learned through parenting, the vital role of men's work, and also, I think what I'd refer to as the all-too-common experience of the two-by-fours that occasionally crack across our forehead that if we're fortunate enough to be paying attention to, give us gentle or not-so-gentle hints that there's something in our lives that's worthy of our attention that, in fact, needs to be changed. And with that, listen in to my conversation with Rick Bronick here on Mojo for the Modern Man. Welcome to a conversation with Rick Bronick. And Rick, welcome to you. Hey, Ken, thank you so very much. It's a delight to be on your show and to be with you again. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. It has been a very long time. Bo uh, both of our beards have gotten grayer. <laughs> <laughs> and our head's balder, too. <laughs> I think my head was fairly bald the first time we met, but that's a story for another time. So, um, well, uh, we set this conversation up a few weeks ago, and a lot has changed in a few weeks, and we'll get into that in, in just a few minutes. And by the way, the, for those of you who are listening, this conversation is being recorded on the 19th of June, uh, 2020, which, of course, is Juneteenth. And, uh, and we'll get into, we'll, we'll, we'll be digging into uh, some of what that has to do with in the conversation later on. So, Rick, let's start here. Uh, what was it like growing up in your part of the world? <laughs> well, thanks, Ken. Yeah, I was born in Chicago, Illinois, but most of my upbringing was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and Milwaukee is the, either the first or second most segregated city in the United States. Mm. 
Sometimes Memphis, Tennessee is top of the list. Sometimes Milwaukee's the top of the list. So I was awash in that sort of environment from very early on in my life. Um, I'm the oldest of six kids. My parents were separated seven times, so I had quite an interesting childhood. I lived in 17 different houses between birth and graduating high school and went to 10 different schools, mostly because of those separations, but mostly in the southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois area. And what, so there's more to the story. There's certainly more to the story there. And, and all, all that, and we're only up to high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, then I got married and I went to college, of course, and I became a, a high school chemistry teacher, which I did for 35 years in Racine, Wisconsin, just outside of Milwaukee. Got married, had a, had two precious daughters, and about 35 years old, uh, life started coming apart. And uh, a lot of stress in the marriage, a lot of difficulties. Um, and it drove me into a deep dive into my own personal work, um, including men's work, which is where you and I intersect. I did the Mankind Project training in March of 1990, and it really changed my life. And since then, I've done leadership training in that organization and become a, a full leader, a leader trainer, and a multicultural leader within that organization and also in my own business um, retired from teaching in uh, 2007 and dove more deeply into my own business, Ken, which I'm a writer. I have three books out there. I am a webinar uh, producer and a professional speaker, and I lead men's trainings for the Mankind Project and other organizations, and I've had the privilege of leading them on in 11 countries on five different continents for many, many thousands of men over the years. Well, that's where my life is today. Yeah, wow. There, what was it? And actually, let's take take a few steps back um, because you said you started to dig into your, you know, doing your own inner work, mm -hmm. um, and and as part of that, uh, ended up in the world of men's work. So, uh, what was it that clued you uh, into? Oh, okay, you know, I, I I'd better start looking at myself in the mirror a little bit differently? Well, there was a number of clues that I was sort of unconscious to. They kept knocking me on side the head, Ken, until I started paying attention. <laughs> oh, seriously. And a big part of it was some of the dysfunction going on in my marriage at the time, um, particularly around sexual issues. Um, you know, my first wife was a sexual abuse survivor and deeply... Um, damaged our relationship. And so that, that put us into a deep dive right after we got married. And, and then I found myself saying and doing things to my daughters that I swore, Ken, I would never, ever do to my kids. Of course, they were done to me. And I caught myself short and said, what the hell is going on here? You know, this isn't you and this isn't the way you want to parent. So I, so I really started diving into my own work and realizing, oh, gee, I got some work to do too. It isn't just my wife, me too. And uh, that led me to men's work and 12-step work and, uh, you know, really, really changed my life. Been doing that for well over 30 years now. Yeah, and, and how did you discover, uh, it's, an, it's an important step here, how did you discover 
the world. I know you did, you know, you, 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 you were an early adopter uh, of Mankind Project, yes. given, given the date. Um, what, how did you discover it? Well, again, that's a great question. I had the good fortune of living in Milwaukee, which is where the three men that started the Mankind Project, Bill Kauf, Rich Tosi, and Ron Herring, lived or right very close to that. And, and so I bumped into it almost by accident. Some men that while I was in another healing circle with had done MKP, and I saw the changes in them that I really liked. I wanted some of that. And they grinned and said, just go do the training. Don't ask. We're not going to tell you what happens. Just go do it. And I did. And I was very, very grateful for that advice. Uh, so it, it, part of it was by accident. I lived there and I had a, the good fortune then of becoming pretty close friends with Tosi Kalf and Ron Herring, unfortunately, has passed on. Mm. Uh, and to this day, we remain, maintain a good friendship. I was going to ask you uh, uh, if you're still in contact, and you just answered the question before I had yeah. a chance to answer it, uh, to ask it. <laughs> so uh, because of the, uh, well, let's take the conversation in a, in a slightly different direction. And that is, um, you know, based on where we are, culturally, historically, uh, you know, the first question that comes to mind is what, you know, what do you see as the, the vital role, use that language, what do you see as the vital role of men's work, given where we are? Hmm. Well, you, that's a hard question, Ken, uh, because I think there's so many roles. I think a big part of men's work is to help men wake up to their healthy, sacred masculinity and to their missions, uh, some reason or purpose for being on this planet, and to help men activate that. I know you're involved with that. I've been involved with that for a long time, and that really changed my life. In addition to that, there's a deep hunger for most of us to have more diverse circles. We want men of color, black men, Latino men, Native American men, Asian men, in our circles. We, those of us that are, you know, identify as white, and straight also want more diversity regarding orientation, I think. And so if that's the case, then it's up to us to learn how to make those circles inviting and safe when men of difference get in there so they're not constantly whacked by the microaggressions that my unconsciousness and other men's unconsciousness constantly create within those circles. You know, it's fascinating, and I see this, I'm sure you see it as well, uh, and that is there is, you know, there, there, there is this enormous hunger, practically a starvation, I would say, uh, to, to, to sit in those circles, metaphorically, uh, as well as literally, yes. to, you know, to sit in those circles and be able to connect at, at deep levels, emotionally, spiritually, uh, uh, so, you know, across the board, and at the same time, uh, I know I, I see it often. There's this enormous hunger and this and this huge fear. You know, this huge fear is like, oh man, I'm gonna have to. Uh, I'm gonna have to be vulnerable. I'm gonna have to expose. I'm gonna have to share. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what do you what do you what do you say to that? Well, uh, again, it's a great observation. Uh, uh, to, to be useful, a men's circle absolutely has to be vulnerable and authentic. 
And, you know, part of that vulnerability is coming to terms with uh, our ignorance and unconsciousness around the whole idea of difference. Um, you know, being raised as a white middle class straight guy in the Midwest, there was a lot I didn't know about um, being black in America, being Latino, being gay, being transgendered, uh, or for that matter, being female. And sitting in circles with men of difference. I was very fortunate. My very first circle had an uh, African-American man who's still my dearest friend, a Latino man, uh, a gay man, a couple of bisexual men, and a couple of Jewish men. So we were awash in this sort of multicultural sea of impacts that were happening that we didn't know how to to deal with using the tools that we had from our men's circles. We had this idea of being vulnerable and sometimes my vulnerability and speaking my truth. And I'm, if you can see my air quotes around that, my I, I, I can hear them <laughs> impacted, you know, uh, other men in the circle who had a quite a different experience, you know, and also Candace is colored deeply by this sense of, relief. I'm finally in a circle of just men, and we all have this common experience being men. Therefore, we're all alike. And the truth I've learned since then is we do have a common experience of being men that's beautiful, and we're not alike. That an experience of a black man in this country might be very different from my experience. Uh, I, I'm able to, because of my privileges, to walk through most of the world, particularly the so-called white spaces in the world, with without having to even think about things that my brothers of color have to think about on a daily basis. I, I want to I pause you here just for a minute to underline what you're saying, because I think it's, um, you know, we're seeing it on social media. We're seeing yes. it. Uh, we're seeing it in conversation. We're seeing it everywhere. It, 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 it is really easy. I'm going to say it's, it, it is really easy as white men to slip into unconsciousness about the level of privilege that we have, you know, and, and to completely miss the, the, the fact that, you know, even when I'm having a tough day, I'll speak for myself, you know, even when I'm having a tough day, uh, I am not worried about getting pulled over by a cop and never seeing my family again. I am not worried about uh, whether I'm going to be, uh, you know, if I go to get uh, that, I'm, that I'm going to be watched uh, with extra eyes. If I'm checking out uh, the local liquor store, for instance, not, not yeah. even in my purview. Right, right, right. Uh, I'll give you an example. As, as you know, I do some multicultural training for the Mankind Project and other organizations. Which I want to make sure we hear more about. Absolutely. Yes, Keep sure. going. I'd be delighted to. Um, and in that training, I'll often ask, as, a, as a, when we talk about privilege, how many of you white people have ever had the conversation with your sons or daughters about how to behave when stopped by the police, how to put your hands at, on the wheel, never move them off the wheel without permission, explain to the officer, I'm reaching for my you know, license now, and so on and so forth. And of course, none of us white people in all the trainings I've done have ever raised their hand and said, I had that conversation. How many of you black people or brown people have done that? Every hand goes up and there's this stunned silence in the room those of us that are white get just one little tiny glimpse 
And I can't imagine what it would be like, Ken, to have, have had the conversation with my daughters about how to behave so they don't get shot or hurt or arrested when they have a simple traffic stop. Um, my friends of color, and I have some very close ones, tell me that they don't have this conversation once or twice. They have it all the time because they're scared to death when their kids go out, especially as teenagers or young adults into the world, that something's going to happen to them like what happened to George Floyd. And that's just one tiny piece of privilege that you and I have that they do not. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking of uh, of a former student of mine who uh, posted recently on social media that he uh, he made it a point every day to to a man of color. He uh, mm -hmm. uh, made it made it a point every day to when he left for school to tell his mother uh, he loved her. He never shared why he told his mother he loved her. Uh, and what he shared in his post was, you know, I, 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 it was something that I was aware of every day I left for school that there was a possibility that I wouldn't come home. Wow. 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 That brings tears to my eyes, Ken. Yeah. That never occurred to me in context of my race. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In, in terms of race, in terms of, you know, as you mentioned before, as, 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 cis, as cisgendered, hetero, white, white men, mm -hmm. you know, wasn't a question of race, uh, sexuality, etc. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll ask this too, uh, because you provided me a perfect setup, and that is what does allowing oneself, I have my own, I have my own opinion, uh, you know, what does allowing oneself to be moved as you just were, what does that make available? Well, if you're going to dive into, you know, the unconsciousness that many of us white people have around race or many of us straight people have around orientation, um, one of the incentives for that is the uh, enormous compassion that can come out of hearing the stories of men who are willing, and they have to be willing to share the pain, the experience of what it's like to walk in the world as a man of color or a gay man or a trans man, uh, or I've had this conversation with women, of course, um, and, and really, really listen humbly and learn from their experience. It's eye-opening and it's heartbreaking in many cases. And so if I can come at that with a, a sense of compassion and empathy and, and really hear those stories, then I have a better chance of understanding and becoming more aware of how I can walk in the world in a different way. To use my privilege, for example, as a positive thing to help bring change to the world instead of stymieing change. Yeah, beautiful. And to recognize, I think there's another there's another layer, and I know I know I'm preaching to the choir here, and uh, and that is to to recognize the fact that if you're moved, if you're moved, that is not the same thing as actually going in or going out and doing the work. Exactly. Exactly. And the work, of course, is. First of all, educating ourselves, you know, what, it, what, it, what is the thing that I don't understand about being black in the U.S. or being gay in the U.S. or so forth, being Latino, uh, and, and then doing the deep work around my privileges, which blind me 
uh, to all of the impacts, all the differences in the world. Um, that's, that's not to say that um, white people don't struggle in the world. Of course we do. But we are buoyed up by a great deal of privilege that we don't even see. We don't even notice until someone else points it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. Well said. What is, um, you know, what, I'm looking for the way to ask this question here. So bear with me while I'm, bear with me while I'm finding my words. Um, what do you see as, um, how do I ask this? So let me, let me, let me, let me, let me set it up and then I'll flip it back to you because it might not be a question at all. It might be a response to a statement. So in, in, in the work that, in the work that I do, whether it's coaching or the, uh, the men's programs that I run, Mm-hmm. The, you know, to me, one of the places where uh, I'm always always driving is toward responsibility. And when I say responsibility, I I don't mean the culture's version of responsibility, which is just laid down with uh, duty, burden, and obligation. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I'm going to take it that that was the laugh of recognition. Yep. Uh, yeah, uh, but but a different kind of responsibility that has, uh, interestingly enough, it's a different kind of privilege. I, it's 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 an uh, it's an adult privilege. It's not oh, I have to be responsible for uh, for myself and my world. I get to you know, as a functioning adult human being, I get to be responsible. Um, so with that as a uh, as uh, as a setup, uh, or context really. Uh, what do you see as the the role of responsibility again? You know, at this point in our at this historical moment. Um, well, again, it's another difficult question. It depends upon each of our willingness to dive into sort of our purpose for being on the planet. Mm. Purpose is just to. I'll put it in air quotes again, selfishly live your life, make a living and get through things, then there may not be more responsibility. For those of us who have claimed a mission, for example, understand that we have a purpose greater than ourselves for being on this planet, there comes the responsibility to make change, positive change in the world. My Part of my mission is about um, multicultural change, about ending racism. I don't say that I'm not a racist. I say that I'm an anti-racist. In other words, I'm actively fighting to end racism. I'm actively fighting to end sexism and the patriarchy. I'm actively fighting to end heterosexism and cisgenderism. Uh, And that means I'm joined organizations and I march and I send my money and I pay attention. I listen. Um, why? Because my mission requires me to do that, Ken. It is baked into me. I'm really aware that that's one of my main roles for being on this planet, to learn about this stuff and teach this stuff. And I'm so delighted to have a brother like you that's along that same path. Hmm. And that gives me the responsibility then to show up, you know, <laughs> to, to walk my talk, to live my life in accordance with that mission. Thank you so much for joining me. And of course, my guest, Rick Bronick, here on Mojo for the Modern Man. For the first half of our conversation, we will be back in another week. 
on Mojo for the Modern Man for the second half of the conversation between Rick and myself, in which we will dig into choice, we'll dig into mission, and of course, we'll dig into more of uh, Rick's wisdom and his good work in the world. And speaking of Rick's good work in the world, you can find out more about what he's up to with his co-author and his webinars and other goodies uh, at powertoolsformen.org. That's powertoolsformen.org. And of course, you can reach me at Ken at Cirrus Coaching, C-I-R-R-U-S Coaching.com, or you can also reach me um, via my website, uh, which is CirrusCoaching.com or CirrusLeadership.com. Both will get you there. And uh, I want to make mention of a couple of things. First of all, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite uh, podcast service. And speaking of subscriptions, when you swing by my website, uh, make sure to uh, subscribe to my weekly newsletter. You'll get all sorts of information and fun articles and uh, sometimes deep and confronting articles as well. Um, And, uh, of course, uh, you'll find out about other programs that I'm running, etc. And with that, thank you again for joining me and my guest Rick Bronick here on Mojo for the Modern Man Make it a great day.